Hello, welcome back to the HP Lovecraft Book Club. In this episode, I'll be looking at the festival. Um, the festival is the third of three stories that I, I'm sort of grouping together as all about uh, kind of the sins of the father and uh, how various narrators kind of address it and, and face it or investigate it and confront it. Uh, the first of these was The Lurking Fear, in which our narrator largely is in denial. The second is Rats on the Wall, where our narrator is, is embracing his family legacy because he has nothing else in his life. And in the third, it's, it's somewhat in the middle. It's the festival. Our narrator uh, is following the orders of his ancestry, of his, of his parenthood, of his, of his, of his genealogy um, to attend this festival, this ritual. But he does so with a lot of ignorance and, and kind of uncertainty. And, and not really knowing what he's going to run into. So uh, I just did two really long episodes on The Lurking Fear and the Rats on the Wall. This one should be shorter. I, I plan to be it shorter. I don't, I don't want to um, do another really long one. Um, I, I think I can get through this one a little bit more quickly, uh, even though there's a lot of detail here in this, in this relatively short tale. Uh, so anyways, this was written originally in October 1923. It first appeared in 1925 in Weird Tales. So one thing we noticed right away in the festival is that this is a story of the sea. I don't think we've seen a, a, a really sea story in quite a while. Uh, maybe since the temple or one of the Dreamlands tales. They always seem to have the sea in them. Um, I've, I've said a lot about the sea throughout this podcast. See, you know, Going so far as to argue that we should really look at Lovecraft as an author of the sea of the ocean, of, of, of the interconnected networks. That's why the sea is so important. The, you know, seeing the sea as a, as a highway for traditions and ideas, uh, occult uh, values, uh, people, obviously his anxieties about immigration and race in America are intimately tied to the sea as well because that's how people got to, got to, got to America or migrated, or even in his kind of theorizing about the origins of, of you know, the peopling of Britain or whatever, like his conversation he has with um, Robert E. Howard later on in his life. You know, the sea is really on his mind um, quite a lot. Uh, and this is a story that certainly emphasizes the, the role of the sea. It's set in Kingsport. Kingsport was previously the setting of the terrible old man, but there it was just basically a throwaway name for a place. Here we actually start to get a little bit of the, of the history, of the tradition of, of, of it. Um, this is, uh, it's, I've, I've heard it, I guess the best, what I've heard is like the best theory about Kingsport is essentially Marblehead. Um, around the time he kind of built up his, um, his kind of, uh, his fictional Kingsport, he had visited Marblehead, right? And he was really interested in it. He wrote a letter about it. Um, and I think we may look at some of his letters or writings about Marblehead later on. I, I think I mentioned in the last episode where I looked at his, the first volume of the selected letters, but I think there's other letters later on he writes where he talks about Marblehead. So we might get a closer look at those because those letters I'll have intact. Um, so that, that's it. But there's also kind of a Salem thing here because we have evidence of witch trials here. So it's just kind of a, a mix. Arkham's kind of a Salem too. Uh, with its own history of witchcraft. So it all kind of gets jumbled together a little bit in this fictional, fictionalized New England. But I, I think this is a sea town, like Innsmouth. Like Innsmouth, this is a sea town. 
but uh, a little bit more isolated. In Innsmouth is an interesting case in terms of isolation because it's currently isolated, but in the past it was really interconnected uh, to, the, to the rest of the world. Um, this one, um, Kingsport, not so, doesn't seem to have that history of deep interconnection, right? And in fact, in the next story, we'll be looking at the sea again in the Shund house, uh, because there you have a lot of, uh, of family history tied to the, to the ocean. But that's set in Providence. And here's how the story starts. It was far from home when the spell of the eastern sea was upon me. In the twilight, I heard a pounding on the rocks, and I knew it lay just over the hill, where the twisting willows writhed against the clearing sky and the first stars of evening. And because my fathers had called me to the old town beyond, I pushed through the shallow, new-fallen snow along the road that soared lonely to where Abodelaran twinkled among the trees. On towards the very ancient town I have never seen but often dreamed of. So uh, the sea here, this is the sea, sea town. The, the ultimate story is tied to the sea. Um, but the other thing here is he's, he's being drawn by his fathers, his ancestors, his heritage, right? When you say my fathers, it's not, you know, you're talking about your whole line, right? So he's been directed to come to this town. He seems to be the last member of his family who still holds to, to the ritual. So this is interesting, like, you know, when these people came to New England and they settled in, in towns, you know, maybe you kind of get family traditions that build up because everyone's sort of close, right? I guess people moved to other parts of New England, but they're all close, right? But by the 20th century, by the industrial age, with the railroads and things, people started spreading around, right? And these traditions get more diluted. In the same way that someone who goes to college maybe doesn't celebrate Thanksgiving quite the way they did when they lived with their parents. Um, these, these rituals sort of get diluted, but some people hold on to them, and he seems to be one of the few that, that hold on to it. Now, the temporal setting for this is Christmas time, but he always calls it Yuletide. It's kind of going to the pagan tradition, just like Rats on the Wall, where you had the kind of different layers of tradition in the physical architecture of the castle. Here you have kind of the physical architecture or, or the, the cultural architecture of traditions. Christmas on the top, Yuletide down below. And maybe, and, and in fact, it's suggested here that it's older than Bethlehem and Babylon, older than Memphis and mankind. Right, so that these traditions even go predate humanity itself, not only predate history, predate civilizations, but predate history, uh, mankind itself. Now, Kingsport is the last place, apparently, where this Yuletide festival is still being um, uh, practiced, or, or the place that's still the center of this tradition. Maybe not the only place, but, but you know, maybe the last place in America where this tradition is being kept. Um, but it's been forbidden for, for quite a long time, right? They kept the festival in the elder time when festival was forbidden. Um, now the term, even here, it's not the festival. It's just festival, festival. It should, I almost think it should be capital F, festival um, here. But anyways, I, you know what I was reminded of when reading this was, was kind of uh, Peter Leinbaugh's new book on May Day. Um, it's, it's a short little book, and it's, it's an interesting little history of May Day. Of course, you got the, the labor movement connection to May Day, but he says there's also kind of a, a quote-unquote green May Day that goes back to, to the, you know, Druids or something. It goes, it goes way back. But in New England, it goes back to some of these kind of anti-Puritan people who wanted to celebrate 
you know, May Day, the Spring Festival, right? The Fertility Festival, the Maypole, dancing on the Maypole and stuff like that. But the Puritans hated it because they were all about work. May Day was about a day of rest, a day of festivity, a day of sex, a day of enjoyment. But the Puritans, they didn't want anything to do with that, so they tried to shut it down, right? So um, the forbidding of festivals in New England is not just, you know, with the witches. There was other festivals that, that got shut down because they weren't, you know, in tune to the Puritan philosophy. Now, the people who are engaged in this ritual are narrator's people. Quote, mine were an old people, and they were old even when this land was settled 300 years before. And they were strange because they had come as dark, furtive folk from opiate gar southern gardens of orchids and spoke another tongue before they learned the tongue of the blue-eyed fishers. The blue-eyed fishers being being the settlers. So it's it's not clear to me whether this means they predate their like Native American traditions. I think they're not. I think they're old world traditions. So, But they were in America, or these traditions at least predate that. Um, right, so... They just came along with the with the Puritans. I think he's talking about the tradition itself that goes back to to ancient times. Because he mentions Memphis, he mentions Yuletide. These these are all European things, or, or old world things. Anyways, but anyways, he comes, and so the first part of the story is kind of setting up this this background you need to know, but also just the march, the hike to Kingsport, right? So he goes over this hill's crest, uh, sees the sea town, sees Kingsport. Um, and, and it's an old town, you know, we, it's, it's got the, the church in the center, like the old, like New England town did, uh, colonial houses. You don't have the modern, like straight roads. It's all the chaotic, uh, dwellings and, and, and geography of a, of a colonial pre-automobile, pre-industrial city, right? So not only is the sea kind of presented here as an immemorial eternal force, the stars are also presented as that. The city itself is ancient and old. So everything is old and eternal here in Kingsport. So there's this long-standing conflict, it seems, between the Christians and the festival, right? So we already see just in the name, the festival, people partaking in the festival, talking about Yuletide, the Christians emphasizing Christ, Christ, Christianity, but we have here that four of his own kingsmen, our Venerian kingsmen, were killed for witchcraft in 1692, which is the year of the Salem witch trials. May, you know, he says he doesn't know just where, maybe in Salem or maybe Arkham, because Arkham has its own witch, witch trial history. So a long conflict between the Christians, the Puritans, and these people who engage in these customs. Quote, then I thought of the season and felt that these old Puritan folk might well have Christmas customs strange to me and full of silent hearthside prayer. So after that, I did not listen for merriment or look for wayfares. Uh, more suggestion that this is just like stuck in time. This is stuck in time, right? Now, you know, I think we got to admit here that from a 20th century standpoint, from Lovecraft's point of view, when you read the Puritans, which he did, he read Cotton Mather, right? We know this. He cites some Cotton Mather books. He read those old Puritans. You know, he read the stuff about the witch trials. You know, their worldview is so different from our own. It's so weird. It's so bizarre. I mean, even from a modern Christian standpoint, there's a lot of weirdness in their beliefs and their traditions. And I think Lovecraft is kind of having some fun with that, that here. Um, this is also a town that's incredibly isolated. It, it's There's some... Um, 
I don't want to say class so much because you don't really get the sense of class here, but certainly isolation um, in, in this town. And that's going to come up again with, with certainly Innsmouth, Dunwich, you know, cities, towns that become the center of occult traditions are often physically isolated, right? I think Lovecraft has a narrative here that, you know, you kind of, you kind of forget these communities at your own peril. Now, this isolation allows for certain, like, like local legends to build up, as usual, as we come to expect in Lovecraft. Um, but also, you know, it's, it's just the infrastructure to get to the city. You notice he's walking, right? He's walking to Kingsbury. He's not taking a, a, a train. At least you can take a bus, I think, to Innsmouth. Um, maybe to Dunwich, too, if I forget. But, quote, the old map still held good, and I had no trouble, though Arkham... At Arkham, they must have lied when they said that the trolleys ran to this place, since I knew not, so I saw not a wire overhead. Snow would have hit the rails in any case. Now, if you have an active rail line, trolley line, during winter, my, I presume they maintain that and, 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 you know, not let it be snowed over. But not on the way to Kingsport, anyways, because no one goes there. No one's interested in that, right? All the buildings were built before 1650. It's like super, super ancient. I mean, that's the first. 20 years of Puritans in New England, you know, 1630, really, to, to 1660, the first generation. So nothing built really since that first, the first homes were laid um, in the Puritan migration. All right, so that's, that's enough uh, background. Uh, now we can get into the plot of the story uh, precisely. He goes to this house. He knows the house to go to. He's got instructions. He's following the instructions. And he goes to this house with this archaic iron knocker, knock it. You know, he's a bit freaked out by this. I don't know why. I mean, the, everything else in this town is old, so why not the, the, the knockers? But anyways, he goes there, and he meets an old man uh, who answers the door, and he's sort of like, the old man seems to know he's supposed to be there. The old man does, can't speak. He's dumb, so he's not able to speak. And so he can write stuff down. He writes stuff down in this old script that's kind of hard to read, but our, our narrator can sort of understand that. There's a woman there who also doesn't speak I don't think she's dumb. She's, she's, she doesn't have a disability here, but she, she's just spinning. It's a really creepy scene, actually, where you got this weird man opens the door, can't say anything, just invites him in, and you got this woman spinning in the background. Again, kind of a 17th century technology, right? They never modernized, never escaped the 17th century. And she's just spinning. Um, despite the festive season, we're reminded, despite it being festival, she's still doing her job of, of spinning. Like an old kind of New England uh, housewife, I guess. Um, and he starts to think, our narrator starts to think, there's something really off about this guy, this old man. And that is that he seems not to have a real face. His face is sort of bland and plastic. Um, and, and, or waxy, I mean, not, not plastic. He's kind of waxy. And his eyes don't move. And he kind of concludes this. He says, uh, finally, I was sure it was not a face at all, but a fiendishly cunning mask. But the flabby hands, curiously gloved, wrote genially on the tablet and told me I must wait a while before I could be led to the place of festival. So now we're met, led to doubt whether this guy is even, even human, um, which kind of adds to the creepiness of the, of the tale. So they got to wait. He's got some things to do. He's not going to be led to the festival yet so he looks around the house and he sees all these old books right all published before the 17th century um the the demonaria of Rigurius, sadducemus triumphicus 
Marvels of Science. Uh, also, we have the 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 Allus Wormius translation of the Necronomicon, the Latin translation of the Necronomicon. I think we see this book again. I think this is the is this the translation in, in the in the Dunwich Horror, or is that an English translation? I think there's an English translation out there too, somewhere. But this Olus Wormius apparently is a real guy. It's just Lovecraft borrowed him to be the translator of the Necronomicon. Um, and he's heard of it. He's heard of the Necronomicon, but never read it. And he's able to kind of flip through it, read a little bit of it, you know. Now, he finds these books really, really bizarre and weird, but he sort of says, well, I expected this when I followed my father's tradition. Again, it's father's. It's not his specific father. It's just, you know, somehow it's been passed on to him that he's supposed to do this at this time. So he just sort of expected weird things. So he tries to read some of the Necronomicon in its Latin, um, but but it doesn't get too far. Now, suddenly there is a, they're ready for the festival, right? The woman's spinning faster, right? The clock strikes, and the old man comes with like some cultist costumes, right? Now, we don't get these kind of cultists, these active cults that often in Lovecraft. I mentioned that before. In the Moonbog, the festival, and Call of Cthulhu, you see cultists. Other times, you don't really, you don't see them that often, even though they're so important in the pop culture of, and how Lovecraft is remembered and, and kind of studied and, and thought about. It's always cultist, right? Um, but um, here... Here you actually do have cultists in robes, so it's nice. I think the cultists in Call of Cthulhu, they don't even really wear robes. They, they're just kind of weird working class people. Sailors, mulattoes, a bunch of biracial people in the, in the swamps of, of New Orleans. But here we actually get robes, hoods, all that. And then they go off for the festival. And as they go out, there's this large procession on the streets with all these cowled, cloaked figures, you know, going to partake in the festival. And he's, he's new to this. He's seen this for the first time. Um, now we get another reminder that there's something off about this guy, the guy, the, the, the old man who can't speak. Um, you know, whether he can't speak because he's actual dumb or he can't speak because he's really not a human under that face. I mean, that's what we kind of find out at the end. That's probably why he can't talk is because, you know, Whatever sounds would have come out of his mouth would not have been understandable uh, to, a, to a sane human. Um, but we get a reminder of this again. He says, he's jostled by elbows that seem preternaturally soft and pressed by chest and stomach that seemed abnormally pulpy, but seeing never a face and hearing never a word. But they're in this column, and they, this column of, of people marching, kind of like in Nyloropotep, you know, you got these, there it's like three different groups marching. Here you just got this large procession of people going towards a church. Going toward church, a church uh, that is going to be the site of their, this temple. In fact, the language changes when he first talks about it as a church. Later on in the paragraph and in the future of it, he mentions it as a temple. And so much of the rest of the story is this descent into, into down in the temple. They descend down kind of into a tomb. Um, quote, I knew we must have passed down through the mountain and beneath the earth of Kingsport itself, and I shivered that a town should be so aged 
and maggoty with subterraneous evil. So the whole town's kind of old, right? You know, I guess there's kind of Indian stuff before the settlement of, of places like Marblehead. But, you know, that if all the surface architecture was built by 1650, when was this subterranean stuff built? It, you know, was it after? You know, because in Rats in the Wall, it's kind of a bottom up. You know, the architecture goes bottom up. Like that cult was there from the primordial times. And each generation that came and settled there kind of built on top of that. Right, it's kind of like that in the Shunt House too, where the evil was there and then people built the house on it and, and experienced the evil. It's, it's, it's kind of a, it's not that the, they bring the evil to it, it was already there. Rats in the Wall was that way. Uh, here, I get the sense that the people of Kingsport must have built this at the same time that they built their town, right? Otherwise, I'm not sure how the history really works here. But this is a much shorter tale. We don't get as much of the, the, the exploration of the history here. Um, now, he has his own little doubts, but he's still following the tradition of his fathers. He's doing what his fathers asked him to do, to engage in this primal rite, as it's described. You hear music. Um, and the other thing they see is they, as they go down here, they kind of enter up against the shore. They're, they're able to see a, a, a path, a, a waterway into the ocean. Quote, and suddenly there spread out before me the boundless vista of an inner world, a vast fungus shore litten with the belching column of sick greenish flame and washed by a wide oily river that from abysses frightful and unsuspected to join the blackest gulf of immemorial ocean. So essentially this river, this underground river waterway is flowing into the, the ocean. Um, and then he starts to see the ritual, the Yule Rite, take place. And it's got all this fire and music. Uh, they're in this weird grotto, but you know, the, I think the the things you really see that are emphasized in the story are like a flute music, which we, of course we've heard a little bit, and the music of Eric Zahn, the music from outside, was flute music, and and we've seen in other stories too. It's something Lovecraft. I think I think generally Lovecraft's becoming interested in art and music at this time in his career. You know, a lot of his stories have some suggestion of like the beauty of the grotesque, whether it's grotesque music or grotesque imagery, or often you have characters who see something and talk about it, even though it's disgusting and vile and fungus and, or a corpse or something, they'll talk about it as picaresque, you know, as, as something that's, you know, and even at sometimes like in the, in Herbert West, the narrator says, you know, if someone with a artistic eye could see this, they, they, they could appreciate it in ways that we can't as scientists. Right, but so we got music, and, and we have these kind of green lights, these these wonderful evergreen lights and music. Quote, uh, to quote him, it was the Yule Rite, older than man and fated to survive him, the primal rite of the solstice and spring's promise beyond the snows, the rite of fire and evergreen light and music. And in this Stygian grotto, I saw them do the rite and adopt the sick pillar of flame, and follow and throw into the water handfuls gouged out of the. Vicious of education with glittered green and the choleric glare, end quote. So bizarre colors, just weird stuff going on, weird ritual. Um, and then what happens is out of, eventually when this rite's over, it goes on for a few paragraphs. And the Necronomicon is mentioned again as a source of the rite. But, you know, at the climax of this, out of the water comes monsters, creatures that he really can't describe. Um, they're, they're kind of tame though. They're tamed 
creatures, they're hybrid and they're winged. That's how they're described. Uh, tame, trained, hybrid, winged things. And they're not, he's not clear what to really compare them to. They're not really crows or moles or buzzards nor ants nor vampire bats, nor decomposed human beings. Uh, that, of course, makes us think of the hound, where you have a flying creature that's originally mistaken as a decomposing human being and later revealed to be a, a flying monster. Um, but anyways, these monsters come out of, uh, of the water. You can't really describe them. And the people, the cultists, the, the participants in the Yuletide ritual begin to ride them, and they ride them into the water, not to fly away. They ride them into the water. It's really wild. Quote, they flop limply along, half with their web feet and half with their members' wings, and as they reached the throngs of cellar prints, the cowled figures seized and mounted them and rode off one by one along the reaches of that unlighted river into pits and galleries of panic where poison springs feed frightful and undiscoverable cataracts. The old spinning woman goes in there, and eventually he's left only with uh, himself and this old man, right, who he kind of starts to identify as the deputy of his fathers, right, maybe one of the original founders of the Yule ritual. Um, and a couple of revelations happen at the end of the story. One is this watch, this watch that somehow proves a connection to his family. That the old man is able to pull from his robes uh, a seal ring, like a kind of a cult, cult, cultist ring, but also a watch. Um, they both have the family arms on them, like the family symbol, right? But the watch specifically the specific watch was buried with his great 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 grandfather in 1698 right not at the time of the Salem witch trial so apparently he wasn't a witch or he wasn't tried as a witch but 1698 is when he died and so somehow this this watch was dug up at one point and passed on through this man right maybe there's a gap in participating in the yule ritual between 1698 and our narrator right we don't, we don't have any clear generation-by-generation generation genealogy the way we do in the Rats in the Wall or the way we do in the Schundhaus. We're not given that, or the German, Arthur German. Often when Lovecraft looks at these hereditary stories, he really wants to trace the family history. It's part of the fun of reading the stories is actually making the family trees. He doesn't do that here. And here there seems to be a, a gap of sorts. That's why he talks about his father's traditions, his father's faith. Um, but anyway, the second revelation, besides this family connection being quite intimate, um, is the old man pulls back his hood and takes off the mask, and, and that leads him to madness, whatever he sees. Obviously not, not human. We don't see the face, it's not described, but obviously whatever it is, it's not human. He jumps into the water, not on one of the monsters, creatures. He jumps into the water, wakes up later in Kingsport, um, or where does he wake up? Arkham? Not in Kingsport. St. Mary's Hospital in Arkham. That's where he wakes up. They found him. Someone found him in the waterways in Kingsport Harbor. They, they dry him out, eventually take him to the hospital, St. Mary's Hospital in Arkham, which I think was mentioned before in uh, The Unnameable. So at the end of the story, we get a very, very long quote from the Necronomicon, um, which kind of... Uh, you know, basically, the, the, he's in his hospital bed and he meditates on the Necronomicon at the end and what he's experienced and, and all that. And he, and he quotes the Necronomicon. And I'll read it for you uh, as a way of kind of wrapping up my look at the story. The nethermost caverns 
are not for the fathomment of eyes at sea, for their marvels are strange and terrific. Cursed the ground where dead thoughts live new and oddly bodied, and evil the mind that is held by no head. Wisely did Ibn Scarbabo say that happy is the tomb where no wizard hath laid, and happy the town and night whose wizards are all ashes. For it is of old rumor that the soul of the devil bought haste, not from his charnel clay, but fats and instructs the very worm that gnaws, till out of the corruption hoard life springs, and the dull scavengers of earth wax crafty to vex it, and swell monstrous to plague it. Great holes secretly I dig where earth pours ought to suffice, and things have learned to walk that ought to crawl. Unquote. Uh, a really great summary of, of what he's realized about his own family rituals, right? And here we got the Necronomicon, the mad Arab saying, forget it. Let the wizards die. Make them all ash. You know, don't teach these things to walk, you know, that ought to crawl. Keep them underground. Don't dig the great holes in the, you know, don't dig into the earth's pores. So even the mad Arab here is, is a forgetter, but he wrote a big book about it. So I don't know how that's for forgetting. You know, that book caused lots of trouble, especially in the Dunwich Horror. But anyways, that's the festival. Um, not, not quite as, like, amazing, I guess, as Rats in the Wall and the Lurking Fear, but I really like the story, um, partially for the imagery, for the old New England town, the, the cultists kind of marching on the street, and the final climax with the, the rite being performed in these green fire lights and the, and the, and the flute and all that. That's great stuff. It's, it's really uh, memorable. And I think a lot of that stuff has really lived on in like Lovecraftian kind of culture and how people think about it. So anyways, I promised a shorter episode, and so I'm just going to uh, put an end to it now. Um, so those are my three episodes looking at, at these three, I think, linked stories. Obviously, it's not going to be the last time we talk about family. In fact, the very next story does it a little bit, but since it's not tied to the narrator precisely, uh, I didn't include it. And that story will be The Shunned House. The Shunned House. Uh, and that will actually be the final story published by Lovecraft in this series I'm doing. This series of stories up through, I think, 24. Um, then we'll be looking at the, the revisions. Now, I'll just tell you what my plan is with the revisions because, you know, I'm starting to think about them. Uh, some of these stories I've, I've, I have to read for the first time. So I don't know if I'll, I'll be a little bit, because some of these are like really just revised by Lovecraft. Some of them are totally written by Lovecraft. And I think based on what the editors sort of suggest about that, you know, I'm going to either go more detail or less detail. Sometimes we don't really know. Sometimes they are more, they're story ideas that come from others, but Lovecraft develops them and, and writes them out. But anyways, uh, the first two I'm going to do in one episode, The Crawling Chaos and The Green Meadow. Both of these are stories that Lovecraft collaborated with, uh, on with Winifred uh, V. Jackson. So um, those are his first. Um, then uh, we have Poetry and the Gods. Poetry and the Gods apparently is only revised by Lovecraft. So this one, I, you know, I'll, I'll do a very short kind of brief look at, but I'll probably set it apart just because it doesn't really fit with the Jackson pieces. Um, maybe, uh, we'll see. But that one's one he revised. Then I'll look at uh, two by uh, Sonia Green and Lovecraft. And these are also stories that it seems Lovecraft more or less revised 
Obviously, he marries Sonia Green um, eventually, but those stories are Four O'Clock and The Master at Martin's Beach. And then, uh, so that'll be one episode, so that's three. And then the fourth will be Under the Pyramids, which is pretty much all written by Lovecraft. It's the, the titular author, author was Harry Houdini, and he may have offered the idea. Uh, in fact, the main character is a magician in the story. Um, it's so much by Lovecraft, actually, that the Klinger Anthology includes Under the Pyramids as a story essentially under Lovecraft's name. Um, it's the only revision, technically collaboration revision, that Klinger includes in that whole in either anthology. So uh, we'll do an episode on that. So four episodes on the revisions, and those are just the revisions that he worked on up through 24. All right, so that's what's coming out. So essentially I'm saying there's going to be five more episodes before we shift to the letters of, of the second volume of the selected letters. Uh, and we'll do some other nonfiction writing and some other poetry before jumping back into the stories, beginning with the horror uh, at Red Hook. So that's the future. That's the plan. Um, thanks for bearing with me as I explain that. Um, yeah, so if you have your own thoughts about uh, the festival, let me know what they are. Send me an email or a tweet or something. Um, but that's it for now. See you next time.